We continue to walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in a chronological fashion. That's what our series has been. And so we find ourselves yet again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. So please turn there if you would, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. Now as you're finding that passage, one of our favorite places to go as a family when we lived in Arkansas was to drive a few hours up to Branson, Missouri and go to Silver Dollar City. Has anyone ever been to Silver Dollar City? All right, a few people have been to Silver Dollar City. That's cool. All right, so Silver Dollar City is a, is a nice little theme park. It's a good family atmosphere. And one of the attractions at Silver Dollar City is something called Grandfather's Mansion. And in Grandfather's Mansion, well, what Grandfather's Mansion is, is it's a fun house. How many of y'all have ever gone through a fun house, right? Well, that's some of you here. Uh, how many of you live in a fun house? All right. But at Grandfather's Mansion, you go in and immediately everything begins to be disorienting. So there's like a table that's leaning this way, yet the, the pool ball that's on the table is rolling the opposite direction. Or, or there's a room that appears to be upside down. And then in another room, someone's pouring water into a cup, but instead of the water pouring into the cup, it's going up. And so all these disorienting things, one room you go into, it looks like everyone's standing sideways because... Everything's just this, this illusion, this kind of optical illusion that's being played on your mind when you go into Grandfather's Mansion. Well, one of the rooms in Grandfather's Mansion is Grandfather's Safe. And Grandfather's Safe is open, and there's this hole that you look through, and you look inside the safe there, and you see a piece of gold, a big old piece of gold inside of this safe. And, of course, they don't have to put a sign there. They know what you're going to try to do. You're going to reach in. And try to take hold of that gold. So you reach your arm in there and it looks like it's there. And as soon as you try to grab it, it just disappears. It's not there. It, like everything else in the house, is just an optical illusion. Whether they were using mirrors and projection video, I don't know how they did it. All I know is you look in, you see the gold, you try to grab it, and it's not real. It's not actually there. That reminds me of today's passage of Scripture. There's a type of faith, there's a way to profess Jesus that looks real, but in reality is nothing more than smoke and mirrors. It's not real. It vanishes when it's put to the test. So today, again, we're going to be looking at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. This conclusion is made up of four parts. Now, we've looked at the first two parts over the last two weeks. And today we look at the third part, which is verses 21 through 23. And next week we'll finish our study of the Sermon on the Mount when we look at the last part of the conclusion, verses 24 through 27. J.C. Ryle says that Jesus here, as he concludes his sermon, he concludes it with heart-piercing application. And that's a great description of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has some extremely tough things for his disciples to hear. And it's very important to remember, and I've said this every week over the last few weeks as we've gone through this conclusion, it's very important for us to remember that the Sermon on the Mount was delivered to those who claim to be Jesus' followers. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he gathers his disciples around him and begins to speak to them, begins to teach them. He, he sits down, he takes the posture of a teacher, sits down and begins to teach. Now, there were others listening in. We know that. And they were amazed by what he said. But the sermon was directed to his disciples. And this is a very penetrating and hard message that we have here in the conclusion 
of the sermon because Jesus, in short, is saying that many of those who do claim to be his disciples and many of those who will claim to be his disciples are not actually his disciples, are not actually true followers. They're like grandfather's mansion's gold. So to get the flow and the context of this very challenging conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to again read the whole thing, verses 13 through 27, even though our focus is going to be primarily on verses 21 through 23. So please stand now as we read Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. We stand because we believe that this book that we are reading out of is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus... You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that this passage of Scripture would penetrate our heart like a scalpel just the way you intend it to. Lord, I pray that your word, and I believe that your word goes forth and does not return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. And there are some in here who need to hear today's text and examine their salvation, to examine their walk, There may be some in here who are going to hear this text and they need to hear it because they're not truly believers. There may be some in here who just need assurance this morning from your word. And so God, I pray that you would accomplish what you want to accomplish with your word. But in order to do that, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up ears in this room. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would loosen my mouth that I might speak properly. Speak according to your word and strike anything that I may have to say that might be in error. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, 
Those are some of the most frightening words in all of Scripture. These words have weighed on me like a ton of bricks this week. This is a very heavy text. It is a pastorally heavy text. Let me explain that. Because as a pastor, I know that in a church, and even a church our size, there very well may be people who have deceived themselves into thinking they're true believers. And I come into this pulpit knowing that I've got to preach this word accurately. And the intent of Jesus' words here is to wake up the person who's in this position thinking that they're a believer when they're really not. So that weighs heavy on me. That's a heavy responsibility. There's others in this room who I know are very introspective, very sensitive, perhaps always questioning their own salvation. And, And I don't want this text to do in their hearts um, a task of causing greater doubt. And so pastorally my desire is that this very same text, which should waken up some, will bring very calm assurance to others. And so I feel the weight of this text this morning. It's a very challenging text. To say that not everyone who professes Jesus as Lord is going to heaven... That, that sounds hard, it sounds divisive, it sounds unloving, but it's just what Jesus has said. And it better grab our attention this morning. Now this text is also very challenging because of what well, it doesn't seem to, to fit well with other texts in Scripture like Romans 10.9 which says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we see people here professing, Lord, Lord, who are obviously not saved. So what's happening there? And well, without having to go into depth with Romans chapter 10, verse 9, I think what we see there is, well, what we see is that these people's proclamation of Jesus as Lord isn't accompanied by belief. It isn't accompanied by true saving faith that we see in Romans 10, 9. And then there's even a more difficult text in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, which says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul says no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit be producing that in him. And so you come to this text today, so what are these people doing then? They're saying, Lord, Lord, yet obviously they're not saved, therefore they do not have the Holy Spirit. Well, again, without going deep into 1 Corinthians 2... I think we have to say that Paul is not saying that an unbeliever can't vocalize syllables that say Jesus is Lord. The most hardened atheist, you can go up and ask them, hey, can you say Jesus is Lord? And they will be able to repeat those words to you. What Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is no one can say Jesus is Lord and actually mean it. No one can say Jesus is Lord and actually live in a way where they're they're giftedness, they have spiritual gifts, and they live for the body, which is the big problem in 1 Corinthians is that people are living for themselves and not for one another. No one can actually live a Christian life that way and actually have Jesus as Lord of their life except that the Holy Spirit be working in them. So what we see in Romans is, and what we see from Romans, I should say, is that the proclamation here in Matthew is a Lord, Lord proclamation that doesn't have belief. And it's also a proclamation that doesn't come from someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want us to wrestle with this text this morning. I want us to wrestle with God until the hip of our unbelief is put out of joint. I want to first examine the nature, 
Here's the outline for the day. I want to first examine the nature of the false profession of faith that Jesus talks about today. And then I want us to briefly consider the outcome of that profession of faith. And finally, I want us to look at the marks of a true profession of faith. So the first thing here in your notes is that we must be alert to the illusory nature of a false profession. We must be alert to the illusory nature of a false profession. A false profession is an illusion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a type of profession of Jesus as Lord that looks authentic. Like the gold in grandfather's mansion's um, safe. It looks authentic. But in the end, it's nothing but air. It's a mirage. It's an illusion. It's the figment of one's own self-delusion. But it sure does look real. First of all, these people call Jesus Lord. Now, it's true that the title Lord could simply be a polite term akin to sir, but in this context, especially in light of Jesus proclaiming God as his Father and revealing Jesus, revealing himself in this text as being the judge on that final day of judgment, we must see that the meaning here is more than just a polite term. For Christians early on began to refer to Jesus as Lord, and by using that title, they were assigning to him divine nature. They were assigning a divine title to Jesus. Because even in Jesus' day, the word Lord, kurios, was used, was the Greek rendering for the Old Testament Hebrew word for the divine name, for Yahweh. So in other words, your first sub-point on that one is that the false disciple can assert theological orthodoxy. That's why they're so hard to detect. The false disciple can assert theological orthodoxy. The person professing Christ in this passage is acknowledging Jesus as he is to be acknowledged. There will be many who profess Christ with theological orthodoxy who will not enter the kingdom. You say, what? The road is that narrow? Yes, the road is that narrow. The gate is that narrow. Oh, friend, the road is frighteningly narrow, more narrow than we ever first thought. There is a way to accumulate accurate knowledge, develop precise theology, confess correct doctrine, subscribe to true creeds, and still be lost. And you say, well, of course, cold orthodoxy, unless it's accompanied by true affections, well, of course that's not saving faith. But not so fast, because from these very words here, we see the second thing, your second sub-point, that the false disciple can exhibit emotional intensity. These disciples not only rightly ascribe the title of Lord to Jesus, they doubly proclaim it. Lord, Lord! This is an enthusiastic, passionate profession of faith. For we know that in the scriptures when a name or a title is repeated, that's an expression of seriousness or deep emotion like David in 2 Samuel 19 verse 4 when he heard of Absalom, his son's death. He said, oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Repetition indicates passion. So it's not just Lord Jesus, it's Lord, Lord. The false believer can have some very intense affections. Dead orthodoxy cannot save, nor can orthodoxy accompanied by deep emotion or moving experiences. Now obviously, and I hope you know this, I'm not saying that true disciples lack orthodoxy 
or lack religious affections. But I am saying that those things alone do not mean that someone is a Christian. I was reading, or I should say I was listening to a book on Jonathan Edwards all this week. And it's just amazing to see during the Great Awakening what all happened here in America in the 1740s. And of course he wrote the book Religious Affections to help deal with a problem that came out of that Great Awakening. And that was that there were many people who had these great experiences and showed great emotion and great passion and were supposedly converted to the Christian faith and professed Jesus as Lord and even subscribed to orthodoxy only to later fall away. What do you do with that? These people seem to look like real Christians. They seem to say the right things. They're emotional about it. What do you do with this category of people? And so Jonathan Edwards wrote the book, Religious Affections, to help us try to sort through what are, what are true affections and where do they come from and what are false affections and where do they come from. And so here we have disciples or supposed disciples coming up with passionate orthodoxy. Lord, Lord. Well, if theological orthodoxy and emotional intensity are not surefire marks of a true disciple, then surely we can look at the results of their ministry, right? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And so the next thing we see, the third subpoint, is this. The false disciple can produce powerful ministry. The false disciple can produce powerful ministry. And this is quite shocking. Listen to the list. Prophecy, casting out demons, mighty works. And notice that they are done in your name. They are done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this tell us? It tells us that there is a lot of work out there that sounds and looks and claims to be Christian that isn't. Now we're getting real narrow-minded. Because if you look at the ministry of these false disciples, it's successful, it gets results, it probably produces numbers, it just works. It works! How often today when you try to critically evaluate a ministry do you hear, how dare you criticize our ministry? How dare you critique this work? Can't you see the results? We've reached thousands. We've seen a powerful work happen here. Oh, friend, don't you see how applicable Jesus' words are to the church in America in our day? So long as it works, that's the mantra for ministry. So long as it works, so long as it works, we'll violate the very word of God to get the results. Consumerism has led to pragmatism, which very well may be leading many Many, many down a road where they'll stand in front of the Lord boasting of the results of their life and ministry only to hear the terrifying words, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Much of the ministry we call a mighty work, Jesus will label lawlessness. In Luke 10, we read of Jesus sending 72 out to be witnesses in it for his name, and in his name perform mighty works. And we read in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10 that the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus later in verse 20 says this, Do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in what? Not mighty deeds, mighty works. They don't in and of themselves prove that your name is written in heaven. In a similar passage in Matthew chapter 10, which is paralleled in Luke 6 and in Mark 6, we read of Jesus sending out the 12, his, the, his closest disciples, the, the 12, the inner circle who would become the apostles. He sends out the 12 to do similar things. And here's the deal. Judas went with them. And nowhere do we have any indication that, that mighty works weren't done through Judas as well. We don't have them coming back and saying, hey, Jesus, it was wonderful. Every time Judas tried to cast out a demon, it didn't work. I don't know what the deal was. When Judas tried to heal people, they stayed sick. But all the rest of us, it worked. No, there was nothing nothing to indicate that happened. Judas was with the twelve, doing mighty, mighty works. It seems that mighty works can be done through people who are false disciples. Like the preachers mentioned in Philippians 1, verse 10, who preached Christ from envy and rivalry. God in his providence can use false teachers and, or even teaching done in the name of Jesus in a bad way. He can use it to do even the greatest miracle that any man can experience. He can save a person in the midst of that junk. Deemer, who our former elder here at Harbin's, many of you know, and Deemer will tell you his testimony. He was saved out of a word of faith church. God snatched him up out of the, out of the, out of lostness through a word of faith church and then later got him out of that church and brought him into a true church. So when that final day of accounting comes, the deeds of all these false teachers, despite what they may have accomplished, and these false believers will be shown to be what they are, empty, devoid of true faith, and nothing more than lawlessness and sin. Jesus calls these believers workers of lawlessness. Is that not terrifying? It should be, which leads me to the next point. You see, not only are we to be alert to the illusory nature of a false profession, we must be afraid of the terrible outcome of a false profession. We must be afraid of the terrible outcome of a false profession. Verse 23, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As I said, those are haunting words, terrifying words. Oh, friend, you read those words now, but you do not want to hear those words on that day. That day in verse 22 is judgment day. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus himself is the judge. And just as a little parenthetical note here, what is Jesus saying about himself when he says he's the one judging on judgment day? Every good Jew listening to Jesus knew that the person who sits on the judgment throne is Yahweh, is God. And Jesus says, hey, on that day, I'll be there. Jesus is making quite a bold proclamation about his nature by saying that he is the one that is judging. And the many of verse 22 corresponds with the many of verse 13 who are on that wide and easy road to destruction. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I will declare to them. This word declare means to profess or to confess. Do you see the irony here? These people are professing and confessing Jesus, but he is not professing or confessing them. Oh, friend, the question isn't so much, have you confessed Jesus? But will Jesus on that day confess you? 
Verse 23, then, I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those are the worst words anyone could ever hear. For we were created. We were created to enter into his joy. We were created to fellowship with the Father, not to depart from him. And make no mistake, as I heard another preacher say, to depart from Christ is to arrive in hell. This departure is a departure to the destruction of verse 13. A departure to the fire of verse 19. This is a departure to a place of everlasting pain. Make no mistakes, friends. Jesus uses phrases like fury of fire, flame of fire, unquenchable fire, torment of fire, eternal fire. And he refers to our flesh being eaten by fire. Those are not my descriptors. Those are Jesus's. That's how his own words paint the horrific picture of hell. And this is simply language designed to give us an image of what the pain of hell will be like. Hell is so painful that the best that can be done within the bounds of human language is to compare it to being burned alive. Day after day after day, stretching into the future as far as you can see, and then multiply that by 10 billion, and once you've arrived at that point, a mere moment has passed in an unbroken succession of moments that will relentlessly carry on into eternity. And if you're upset and riled and offended by that language, you should be. Jesus speaks that way not to give us warm fuzzies, but to stoke real fear and to warn us of what is to come for those who do not know him. The great reformer John Calvin said, language cannot describe the severity of the divine vengeance on the reprobate. He's right. And Jesus doesn't stop with fire as a descriptor. There's mention of hell being a place of outer darkness, a place of utter loneliness for all eternity, solitary confinement is in a dark room is considered by many an unusual and cruel form of punishment. Hell is solitary confinement for eternity. Hell is also described gruesomely by Jesus as a place where their worm does not die. The image being of a corpse consumed by worms, yet the person is conscious as he or she is eaten alive, yet never fully consumed. Continual, eternal horror. But hell is also called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth, by the way, isn't the gnashing of teeth in pain, but it's continual eternal hatred toward God. The, the Pharisees gnash their teeth at Jesus. And the gnashing of teeth in, in hell is continual eternal hatred toward God. Rebels do not cease to be rebels in hell. And thus, their eternal punishment continues to be eternally just. Friends, do not believe what you hear today as many false teachers try to convince you that hell does not exist. False teachers always minimize sin and always minimize the terrifying nature of God's judgment against sin. Jesus speaks of hell more than he speaks of heaven. 
And he wants us to grasp the physical, the psychological, and the emotional, and the spiritual horror of hell. And all of this pain and anguish doesn't even compare to the terrifying thought of being separated from our God. Depart from me. Hell is a place where one is totally broken off from any fellowship with God. To depart from Jesus is to arrive in hell. So how serious is this business of true faith versus false faith? You tell me. I'm not trying to manipulate you here this morning. I'm not playing games with you. I'm simply telling you what the scriptures say about the place that Jesus is going to say to people, depart from me too. Jonathan Edwards, again, he, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which, by the way, whenever it's um, quoted or used in today's school environment, it's quoted as a, as a manipulative tactic to try to scare people into belief. But, you know, all Jonathan Edwards did was to preach the gospel clearly and preach the realities of hell clearly. And he said this, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they, won't be, that they won't bear their weight. In other words, hell is an immediate danger for anyone who is unconverted. Anyone who is not truly saved. For those who might be in this room this morning who are not truly Christians, I hope that those dreadful words, depart from me, are weighing on you this morning like a ton of bricks. But for the true believer, these words should cause us to worship our God with greater intensity, for we have been made aware of the greatness of our salvation and our deliverance. So not only must we be alert to the illusory nature of a false profession and also afraid of the terrible outcome of a false profession, finally we must be acquainted with the comforting marks of a true profession. The comforting marks of a true profession. I say comforting because I want, in Jesus' words here, for the true believer to find rest. And though we are to daily consistently examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and we are to test ourselves to confirm our calling and election, according to 2 Peter 1, 10. The scriptures also want us, through that testing, to find the peaceful fruit of assurance. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So two clues from this text here this morning regarding how we can know that we have eternal life. Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We can infer the positive from the negative here that true Christians are those who have a real relationship with Jesus. Who truly know him. The question this morning is, do you know Jesus? The word know here, the word knew, is, as you probably already know, is the word used for intimate knowledge. It's the same word, word to describe the intimate knowledge between a husband and a wife. It's a deep, deep love that cannot be broken. You can hear that love in the Apostle Paul's words. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, as Paul speaking of his religious credentials, and actually kind of throwing aside his religious credentials, he says this, he was circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Like Paul before his conversion, many today are putting their hope in what they think they have done for God instead of desiring to know God through Jesus. So friends, we must see that number one, and your sub-point here on this last one, that the true disciple must love and want Christ above all. The true disciple must love and want Christ above all. The true disciple sees the loveliness of Christ as, as a greater beauty than everything else. Do you desire Christ above everything? Is he more lovely to you than anything else? Is he more desirable to you than a filled bank account? Is he more pleasant to you than the most beautiful scenes of nature? Is he more satisfying to you than a vacation with your family? Is he more appealing to you than meeting your favorite sports hero? Is he more captivating to you than your wife's beauty? Is he more intriguing to you than the greatest Hollywood movie that could ever be produced? Is he more beneficial to you than the best medicine available? Is he more profitable to you than all the treasures that all of mankind has accumulated in all of recorded history? Is he more than all? Is he above all? Is he your all in all? That's the relationship with him. I've told this story before. Probably some of you have heard it in here. My grandfather um, in the mid-80s worked for Mammoth Cave National Park. And one day, President Ronald Reagan came visiting the National Park. And he came that day. And I guess they knew he was coming because my grandfather had his camera ready. And so they come and they're visiting. And, and all the workers there are lined up, all these um, National Park workers, one of them my grandfather. And uh, Ronald Reagan's walking down the line, shaking hands. And my grandfather whips out his little Instamatic camera right when Ronald Reagan comes in front of him and takes a picture, okay? And gets a picture of Ronald Reagan. Now, he blew that picture up and hung it in his bedroom. And it was this big, fuzzy face of Ronald Reagan. It wasn't in focus at all. It was this big, fuzzy picture of Ronald Reagan. And he loved that picture. And he would talk about people, how he, he knew Ronald Reagan. He didn't know Ronald Reagan. He met Ronald Reagan. If my grandfather in 1985 would have then gone over to um, the White House and buzzed the White House, or in this case today, jumped the fence, if he'd have gone and, and um, buzzed the White House and said, hey, yeah, this is uh, Marvin Doyle from uh, Mammoth Cave National Park. Uh, tell Ronnie uh, I'd like to visit him. He would have gotten a response that said, um, who are you? Ronald Reagan says he doesn't know you. Please depart from here. Go away. Friends, there are many who think they know Jesus, but they don't. Knowing Jesus is having a true, abiding relationship with him. Information about him is insufficient. Admiration for him is insufficient. Doctrine about him is insufficient. We must love and know him above all else. And only those who have been united to Christ by faith can truly love and know him. John 15, verse 4, one of the greatest passages about that abiding relationship. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Abiding is a living, continual, supernatural, spirit-wrought union by God's grace alone, through faith alone, to Jesus Christ. If we truly are in an abiding relationship with Christ, it changes who we are. It changes what we desire. 
So the, so the examination process here is to ask myself, what do I want most? When I go home today, what do I want most? During the week, what do I want most when I'm sitting at my desk at work? What do I want most if Christ isn't number one on the list? You may have an abiding problem. What do I want most? It changes who we are. Galatians 4, 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? If you truly know God, you've been radically changed. So let us consider the next point. The true disciple must also rest in and obey Christ above all. The true disciple must rest in and obey Christ above all. A true disciple rests in Christ alone and he pleads Christ alone. He has faith in Christ alone. Sola fide. Look again at verse 22. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Where is the hope placed for the false convert? It is placed in his deeds. But their deeds are nothing. It's lawlessness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. One must repent. One must turn not only from his or her sins. Friends, we must also repent of any good deed that we've used as a grounds for our confidence before God. We repent of our sin and we repent of our good deeds because they're filthy rags before God. If we have put any confidence in those good deeds, we need to turn, turn from that confidence. Oh, how a mighty delusion sat over the church for a thousand years before Martin Luther posted those 95 theses. And the true church awoke from its slumber and saw that we could not purchase our way into heaven We could not impress a holy God with our good deeds or our prayers or our piety or our confessions. We could not work off our sin in some imaginary purgatory. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus' finished work on the cross alone. The true disciple rests in Christ alone. It's the only place he puts his hope. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? There will be no boasting in our work on that day. Instead, there will only be resting in, hoping in, faith in, and boasting in the work of Christ alone. On that day. Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we must repent of our sins and repent of any good deeds. No matter how good they are. If we have been putting any hope in those deeds to make us right with God. A true disciple understands that he has been saved by grace, through faith, and that is a gift of God. And therefore, in light of that glorious truth, and by the power of the Holy Spirit now living in him, a true disciple does obey God and does do good works. Ephesians 2 continues in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created 
in Christ Jesus, there's that union in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. That means we should be doing the will of God. The true Christian lives differently. He takes God's word seriously. He desires to know and do God's word. He wants to be saturated with God's word and thereby keep God's commandments and do God's will. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. D.A. Carson said that the, the Father's will is not simply to be admired, discussed, praised, debated. It is to be done. It is not theologically analyzed nor congratulated for its high ethical tones. It is done. So the one who knows Christ desires to do the work of Christ, which is to do the Father's will. Not the work that Christ could only do on the cross, but the work that Christ set an example for us in his life. So we must be infused with his word, the revelation of his will, and pray confidently according to that will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We see both of these in John chapter 15. Again, we'll go to verse 7 of John chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as the father, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. That's what it means to do the will of the father. It is to produce good works that flow out of a true abiding relationship with Christ that we have entered into by grace alone, through faith alone, in his work alone. And it comes as the as the fruit of his word abiding in us. Christians that truly submit to Jesus as Lord do what the Lord has commanded us to do. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It all flows out of that authentic relationship. Matthew 12, 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Doing God's will flows out of a true relationship. I think every parent can identify with When your kids do something good in your home, you want them to do it because they love you, not to get something. So if they come and they say, Dad, I I went and I mowed the yard for you today. Oh, how thoughtful, son. And then that's followed up by, can I play some Xbox now? Oh, you know, you just took, you just gutted everything you just said. (laughs) Sorry, Noah. You want that obedience to really flow out of that love. Dad, I just did this for you. But doing the will of the Father is more than producing good deeds. It also means obedience in our daily walk. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. One can do mighty works and still not be obedient. What God desires is down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, moment-by-moment obedience in the ordinary, simple things of life. So to prophetically preach God's word or do a mighty work means nothing if one goes home and treats his wife and children like dirt. Or if he goes about life with anger and bitterness in his heart. Or if he executes his job out in the public without integrity and without perseverance and hard work. Notice that the things that the false believers profess are public things, public acts. But the true test of true belief is in the private, the private things. 
in the ordinary, everyday activities of life, you can come to this building and impress a lot of people with the way you act. Act religious, speak religious, and no one else can see you when you go home behind your closed doors. But Jesus knows what you're doing behind those closed doors, and you know what you're doing behind those closed doors. And you must ask yourself, is this consistent with doing the will of our Father? Thus, true Christianity is more about inwardly putting sin to death than about powerful public ministry. Let me say that again. True Christianity is more about inwardly putting sin to death than about powerful public ministry. Some of the most holy and godly men and women in the history of the church are people you've never heard of. You will never know them until we get to heaven. Privately fighting and killing sin. Those who are truly Christians are battling sin, putting it to death, overcoming it, although we never fully defeat it until we are with Christ. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. There's that word again. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And of course, our love for Christ doesn't just produce victory over sin. It should also produce love for others. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident those who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And these are the comforting marks of true Christianity. Oh, friend, to know Christ and to be known by Christ means that we have been changed inwardly, truly, and that change is evidenced by the fact that we love Christ and we desire Christ more than anything else. And that the love of Christ is, it has been entered into by, by, by faith alone. We haven't earned that love. And so we put our confidence in his finished work. And then that union with Christ generates a deepening love for Christ and a deepening love for our fellow man. And therefore it produces obedience to his word, which is his will. And it produces progressive victory over sin. And so this whole Sermon on the Mount, as we come to the conclusion, this whole Sermon on the Mount of our Lord Jesus, he has been declaring the traits of a true believer. We saw that in the Beatitudes. And then he's been exposing the hypocrisy of false believers. He talks about how true believers are to, to look in the Beatitudes and then calls on them to let their light shine to the glory of God. He declares that true believers are to keep the law of God, but to keep it at a much deeper heart level than, than ever imagined before. And then he says that we are enabled to do that because he himself is the fulfillment of that law. And he calls on true believers to exhibit true righteousness, not a righteousness that wants to be seen by others. And then he calls on true believers to seek the kingdom of God and not go after the world. And then he calls on true Christians to be rightly related to their brothers and to their God and to others in this world. And then he brings it all to a head right here in this conclusion saying that if you don't get this, if you don't get the sermon, you don't get heaven. So Christian, examine yourself, examine your desires, examine your hopes, examine your dreams, 
and see if Christ is at the center of them. Examine and see if your faith is true, or is it just funhouse faith? Children in this room, please hear me. Jesus did not die so that you could one day stand before him and expect accolades for what you did, even if you did it in his name. You cannot work your way to heaven. And children, you cannot claim the faith of your parents. He died so that you might come to him empty-handed, spiritually impoverished, and and therefore find life, eternal life. He died so that you might stand before him on that day and say, I have nothing but you, Jesus. I desire nothing but you, Jesus. And for those who do stand before him on that day in that way, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. An unbeliever in this room this morning, I simply ask you to call on Jesus in truth. You are living in rebellion against a holy God, and he will pour out holy and just wrath in hell upon you if you do not turn. So repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellious self-sufficiency. And turn to Christ alone, who bore the wrath of God on the cross for sinners, and who rose again from the grave for sinners, so that all who call upon his name might be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we in this room, every single person in this room is able to deceive themselves. We're all able to do it, myself included. Into thinking that our faith is real. So Father, my prayer is that the faith that's exhibited in this room as we sing this final song, as we declare in this song that we love you, that it would be real. But that can only come from the Holy Spirit. So Spirit, move upon us. If there be any unbelieving heart in this room that has deceived himself by religious rituals or religious deeds or religious creeds, that you'd break through the hardness of his or her heart and generate true love for Jesus that comes from being united to him for the very first time. I pray, Lord, you do that in this room. If there be any unbelievers here in this room, Lord, I pray that you would open up their heart to see, to see the truth of how beautiful Jesus really is. So, Jesus, we sing this song to you. Those of us in here who are true believers, Lord, let us sing it with all our heart. We love you, Jesus. We love you. And no matter what may come in our life, poverty, sickness, or even death, we know that nothing can separate us from your love. And we thank you for that. Oh, Lord, we didn't do anything to deserve to be loved. We didn't do anything to deserve your love. You poured it out upon us. You loved us first. So because you first loved us, we love you. And so we sing this to you in spirit and in truth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.